Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Absolutely fantastic. It's always a pleasure to talk with you because you understand music. You have shared the story of music, and you're such a major part of the weave of, of, of storytelling when it comes to who these people really are. Oh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you as well. Well, I love the way that you got involved in this project. It was almost like through the back door because, I mean, it was like Joe Conker, eh, you know, but, but you want to do a manuscript? Okay. And then out came the book. It's crazy. I, I couldn't have predicted this. Uh, a year ago, I was contacted by a movie producer who had optioned the book that I did with Debbie Campbell, Glenn Campbell's daughter. Yes. And she said, um, we can't find anyone to do a treatment of the screenplay. Would you take a crack at it? So I did. And she really liked what I did. So she said, I want another screenplay from you about a rock and roll character. Do you want to do Jerry Rafferty or do you want to do Joe Cocker? So I said, well, let me get back to you tomorrow. I'll look into both of them because I really didn't know a lot about Joe Cocker's personal life. So Jerry Rafferty, Baker Street, which I totally love, Steeler's Wheel, yes. Get Back Jack and Do It Again. You know, great, great career. Um, but he had an alcohol and, and cigarette problem and and was very depressed and, and had an unhappy ending. Joe, I looked into Joe, which I, of course, knew he had Woodstock. He had Mad Dogs and Englishmen. He had that giant comeback with uh, on uh, Up Where We Belong with Jennifer yep. Warnes. And uh, and his career seemed to go on and on. So I thought this, this is really the story I want. And I also found out in the third act of his his life, he fell in love with a woman named Pam Baker and she encouraged him to get off the alcohol, the drugs and the cigarettes. And he had the happiest 10 years of his life. So I thought that was the most complete story. So what I did was I immersed myself in all Joe's music. I have, mm -hmm. I think every CD, LP, cassette that he ever, ever recorded music on. And, and I, I just fell in love with him as a subject. What do you think that adventure with Pam was, was really like? Cause I would like to be a fly on the wall when somebody finally says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I am going to go a different path because I mean, it, it would be such a learning tool for other people out here. Well, it took his wife, Pam, to, to say to him, uh, he, what happened was they had a dinner party at their house in, in Colorado. This was the last straw. He was upstairs when the guests arrived, came downstairs, completely smashed, uh, sat down at the table, knocked over a glass or whatever, and, and displayed that he was obviously inebriated. Pam took him upstairs and said, it's either me or the alcohol. You make a choice. And that's what it took. Screenplay, that's a dramatic scene. That's a, a perfect scene for this movie. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The One of the things that, that I love about the way you write is it's almost like you and I are sitting in the room together when I'm, when I'm reading your book and you're sharing the story with me. You're not giving me a documentary. Thank you. I, I, I really appreciate that you've made my day by saying that. That's kind of how I feel about this. And especially a book like this Joe Cocker book where I didn't know the whole story. So it's kind of like what when I'm writing it to the reader, I'm saying, this is what I discovered. You won't believe this. Wait till you read this. And uh, so it, it's kind of, I, I hope it has that conversational tone to it. So thank you for confirming it. Well, it, it does have that tone to it. And, I, and it makes me wonder, who inspired you to even to find this voice? Because, I mean, there aren't too many storytellers like you around anymore. Everybody just wants to give me one paragraph and then, okay, there you go, figure it out. 
Oh, thank you. Again, I'm flattered. Thank you. But I, I feel when I'm when I'm sitting and typing it up, typing up a story or reporting it in the manuscript, that I am having a dialogue with someone, and I want that kind of clarity when I set up a story and when when I expose the facts. Uh, so I'm I'm glad it's successful. I mean that. When I started out in high school and and learned that I could write, it was really that kind of vision I had in my head. Like I'm going to write this like I'm having a dialogue with the reader, mm-hmm. and and it still rings true. And and I'm glad it's I'm glad you find it successful. So it's uh, after 68 books, I think I'm on the right track. <laughs> oh my God, I have seven and I'm tired. I can't figure it out, man. I don't know how you do 68 books. <laughs> and and I'm and I'm barely uh, in my forties. <laughs> I'm lying. <laughs> so when Joe Cocker does a song like "You Are So Beautiful" and it's and it's on the radio, and at that point in time, the only thing we had was pretty much the Midnight Special and Don Kirshner's Rock Hour or, or John Kirshner's concert. I mean, what what was it about this song that really drew us into those speakers on the radio? You know, it's so funny. That was a song that uh, from his period where everything sort of fell apart. He'd had Mad Dogs and Englishmen, a big depression, a couple of bomb albums. And he he's decided uh, his producer gave him that song that Billy Preston wrote. You are so beautiful. And he just nailed it. And and the funny thing was, it was kind of like a one off. We need one more song, Joe. Just go back in the studio and sing this. All right, all right, all right. And he did it. And, and that's one of the most memorable songs of his career. It just kind of shows you how some of the best creations are accidental in a way. They just kind of come about in that in that particular form well i always wanted the beatles uh to to step in and sing that song only because joe cocker did with a little help from my friends i just thought boy that'd be a great swap that would have been perfect i think we need to get a hold of of paul mccartney and ringo Starr and go you've got to do joe cocker's you are so beautiful i think we're on to something here (laughs) i'm with you on that what what did you personally learn from this journey because i mean you can't go into a a story like this and not pick up something that's going to be like oh my god i can't wait to share this well, the crazy thing about Joe that I discovered, and I had no idea about this. I mean, I knew he obviously drank because you saw him on stage with a glass at all times and obviously did drugs because his eyes were spinning around half the time. Um, but I didn't realize his drinking was to the point where he would get drunk before a show, get on stage drunk, start the show. Mid show, he would regularly vomit mm. behind the piano a roadie would run off with 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 what happened and Joe would continue singing and continue drinking alcohol. I mean, it was just who does that and how did his liver survive? Right, right. right. That's crazy. I mean, I, I'm used to a lot of rock and roll excess <laughs> and I've done books with people who had drug problems, but this really took the cake <laughs> I, I i don't know how he could have done that because i mean i mean i get a slight buzz and my whole creativity level is gone it's like oh man i was doing fine before i did this exactly exactly and i'm i uh, studied theater broadcasting and journalism in college i would never get on stage <laughs> with even a sip of alcohol i want to know exactly what's going on every second Joe is obviously the opposite. <laughs> I know we talk about it being an, an addiction, but I'm, I'm also a firm believer that we we are addicted to uh, not only excitement, but we're addicted to creativity. I mean, sometimes I wonder if, if alcohol is trying to silence those other addictions we've got. 
Well, you know, and, and people who drink and, and you know, like say have a, a you know, a, a blockage when they sit down to write a song or a write a book or whatever. Well, maybe a couple of drinks will help. Well, it does. It convinces you that it is helping, but it really I don't know if it is helping at all. <laughs> so it is a depressant. But for, for Joe Cocker, somehow it worked and all the cigarettes and all the liquor gave him that raspy voice yeah. or made it even more raspy, I should say. So now, what was it about the Woodstock appearance that all of a sudden things began to change for Joe around the world? Well, he had the hit with with a little help from my friends in England. He had a number one hit, but no one really knew him in America. The, The song came out as a single. It didn't make it into the top 40. So he was kind of, you know, bubbling under there. Then comes Woodstock and he does this amazing performance and he was unlike anyone else that anyone had seen uh, in rock and roll. That that crazy spastic choreography of his and that impassioned deliverance of his music, they were just blown away. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really exploded. Then when the, the album of Woodstock and the documentary film of Woodstock came out, everybody knew Joe Cocker. And there was this huge demand for him. Then comes Mad Dogs and Englishmen, the tour, the album, the documentary, everything. And what does Joe Cocker do with it? He gets depressed about it. Oh, you know, I didn't make that much money, but everyone wants me to go out on tour again. I'm just going to lay here on my parents' sofa and get drunk for two years. So he was his own worst enemy many times. And depression issues really, really bothered him. I've said recently, he's kind of like the Vincent Van Gogh of the rock and roll world. Vincent Van Gogh, amazing paintings, amazing creativity, completely Mm self-destructive. And Joe was completely self-destructive as well. How did he even get into the studio with Jennifer Warren in, in, in the way that, I mean, because, I mean, Up Where We Belong was such a big, big song. And, and yet, I mean, and it's so perfectly performed. But, but to hear this story, it's like, how did he even make it in there? Isn't it crazy? He was on tour at the time. He was signed to Island Records, Chris Blackwell's label. And Chris had taken him into the studio to do the Sheffield Steel album, which was done down in Jamaica and has a real reggae feel to it and real rock and roll. So then he gets this offer to do this duet with Jennifer Warnes. And Chris Blackwell, who had the record company, said, this is a piece of garbage. I'm not putting this crap out. And uh, Michael Lang, who was his tour or his uh, manager at the time, said we insist you have to and it's going to be it's from an officer and a gentleman and it's coming out in the movie it's going to be a huge success so reluctantly they put it out the only number one single of joe's in america and number one around the world Mm -hmm. so it's it's amazing the genesis of that and you would think Jennifer Warnes and Joe Cocker. I think people listened to it just just because they couldn't believe that her sweet voice and his raspy, drunken <laughs> voice were together and worked so well. Oh, I was a jock on the radio when that first song that song first came out, and then I, I swear in my heart that's the reason why VH1 even came out because here was this song that people couldn't get enough of, and MTV had too much hairband rock and roll on it. They needed to have an outlet, and I always thought this was the song that helped them do that. Absolutely. And it it brought back his career and really, you know, paved the way for him to do so much more. Uh, It it really, really turned his career around. Uh, You know, he was uh, the 90s for him, the 80s and 90s. He didn't have as many hits anymore, but that song put him back in the spotlight. The funny thing is that I found out uh, doing Joe Cocker is a lot of people didn't realize that he died 
uh, almost 10 years ago. He died in 2014. Wow. When I announced I was doing this book on Joe Cocker, I swear half the people said to me, is he still alive? <laughs> and I was like, he fell that far off the radar. Uh, so I'm really happy to put the spotlight back on him. And hopefully the success of this book uh, and maybe the success of the screenplay that I wrote will finally get him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which he so deserves to be in. See, I'm so guilty of that crime of uh, thinking that an artist is still alive because as long as I have YouTube, I can go and hear that song. If I can, if I have Alexa near me, Alexa, play, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's almost like we have become numb to the fact that they're no longer here. But yet musically, in our hearts, yeah, they are. Exactly, exactly. And that's what's so wonderful about the music business is that the artist's music uh, remains with us even after they're gone or after they lose their voice or their minds or, or whatever. <laughs> and uh, uh, such great music. I mean, the, the, my first line of, of research is always to buy everything I can get my hands on yep. that that person has recorded. And uh, through this research for Joe Cocker, I discovered such great music. One of the songs I want to share with you that you may want to go check out is his version of Respect Yourself by the, the Staples Singers hit. And when he recorded it is when he finally got sober. So he sings it like it's his new anthem oh, wow. of him respecting himself. Wow. And I love discovering little gems like that. You know, you being a fascinating person inside that kitchen, if he were to come over and cook with you in the kitchen, what would you have for dinner? <laughs> uh, I, I guess it would be something typically British like bangers and mash or really? something. <laughs> but I don't know. You know, the most pop I did a cookbook a couple of years ago. I think that's what yes, you were referring yes, to. Yes, it is. Yeah, called Eat Like a Rock Star. <laughs> I don't have a Joe Cocker recipe in there. But the big hit is from Tiffany. You know, I think we're alone now. Tiffany, who's a doll, she gave me a Lebanese cinnamon chicken that is a hit of every dinner party I serve it up. <laughs> But what would I do with Joe? I don't know. <laughs> with with all that uh, vomiting and drinking, I don't know. Maybe we'd just do cocktails. <laughs> e either that or just hot dogs and sauerkraut. Just just something simple. Joe, there you you go. Know, <laughs> go eat, Joe. <laughs> so now, do you think exactly? Do you think your storytelling is is based on your roots in music? Because you're you're from Motown, and when you, I, I just wish I could have been growing up in Motown because I mean, there there's, there was just so many different genres of sound and experiences coming from there that you would have to become a storyteller. Well, I, I'm so glad you said that because I felt exactly that way. I was like, I was in love with Motown. And you, and uh, anyone who knows me knows that one of my best friends in my life was Mary Wilson of the Supremes, yes. who was just a doll and such an inspiration to me. But I grew up as a teenager listening to Motown records and, and saying to myself, oh, my God, 15 miles down Woodward Avenue. This is all coming out of there. Oh, my God, this is from my hometown. <laughs> You know, we've got something in common. You like when you start a book or a writing project, you like to sit down with a writing instrument. Do you have a favorite one? Because I've got some that, I've, that have been with me for 25, 26 years. I love fountain pens. Yes, yes. I love fountain pens. Fountain pens and sealing wax are two of my things that I love. <laughs> you know, so so I what well, I appreciate things from every era. I'm not one of those people who's, who's like, oh well, people are downloading music now. I don't need my record collection. Don't even touch my record collection. It's mine and it's staying here. 
I, I appreciate things from the past, which is which is why when I research something like Joe Cocker, I'm like, oh, my God, I had no idea he recorded this back in 1968. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd never heard this before or whatever it is. So my books, when I sit down to write them, I feel like I'm sharing my discovery yes. with the reader. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and well, even when in reading about you, yeah, I discovered new things such as, you know, what was it like to be in the days of the typewriter? Because, I mean, to me, you were doing the real cut and paste. You would cut that paper and paste that right over the next paragraph. Literally, yes. literally. I went with Mary Wilson on a tour of Japan and Korea in 1983. I was the road manager and stage manager, and I was working on a, our book proposal, and I took my manual typewriter to Japan with me. Exactly, clicking away in the hotel room. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I would fall asleep listening to my mother type, and, it, it, and to this day, I love the sound of a typewriter. Oh, I do too. I really do too. And I still, I still have my 1910 Underwood typewriter that I learned to type on upstairs in my house. Wow. You also seem to be the type of person that would have like a laptop uh, a writing desk. Now, I have one that came from a, from a U.S. Navy ship uh, from the 1940s, and I just I cherish it because I believe that that desk is doing the talking and not me. Do you have things like that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I have favorite pens, favorite yeah. clipboards. I like I like to sit and write some of the things. I mean, some of it I pour out on the computer, but some of it I have to sit and, and I have to see it come out of the pen mm-hmm. and rearrange the words the way I want them. I have to I'm visual that way. I know the project right now is Joe Cocker, but you, you know, you can't shut off your creative mind of all people. You cannot turn it off. So what what are you doing that that's beyond this? Well, I'm already planning the next couple books. And one of the things that I really want to do is I want to write a book about my adventures with Mary Wilson because we had some crazy times. I mean, she was the type of friend. She would call me. This happened in uh, 2008. She called me. I was in Michigan at the time at my parents. And she said, what are you doing in two weeks? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, Is your passport up to date? Yeah. Uh, Okay, you're going to come with me to Monaco and we're going to meet Prince Albert and do a concert for him. Okay, I can go. <laughs> but that's a kind of, I have that kind of sense of adventure. You know, you, you wave a wonderful opportunity in front of me and I'll be there. I'll be there. And you know what? That might be the vibration that, that we all feel as readers in your book is that we, we feel that energy because I believe it moves through us right to the reader. Oh, that's, that's, thank you for saying that because I feel like I am communicating with a single person when I'm writing my books. I'm having a dialogue with that person when I sit down. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm, that I'm successful at communicating my, my ideas that way. Do Thank you, you. Do you foresee them? And I mean, this, that's a radio question in the way that when we step inside the studio, we envision the, the listener being there. And so therefore that helps us, you know, you know create a conversation that's one-on-one. Do you also envision them? Oh, absolutely. And I envision that the reader has no idea what I'm talking about. So I explain it very like I set up the situation, you know, and and I make sure that they know exactly, you know, that the the shirt he wore was yellow. You know that it's cold outside. You know what you know, you know, all the facts (laughs) before I get into the dialogue. So I I, I try and explain things that way, because uh, in my head, like you said, 
I envision one particular reader and me explaining the story to them. Man, I got to tell you, you're such a master when it comes to marketing, because I read about this book on Facebook long before we were even blessed with this conversation (laughs) today. And I mean, you play that game so well or whoever's doing it for you is making sure that you are so far out there that that when that when the book does arrive, then we're all going, oh, my God, I read about this book. My dear friend David Salador has been my publicist for years. And actually, he and I worked for the same publicity publicity company, Howard, the Howard Bloom organization, yeah. back in the 70s. So I learned very early on the importance of publicity. It's one thing to have a product out there, but it's another thing for the, the public to know that it's out there. for it to reach the right people. So I have an appreciation of publicity. So thank you. I'm glad I'm doing it successfully. (laughs) You are. You got to come back to this show anytime in the future, Mark. The door is always going to be open for you. Thank you. I'm so happy to hear that. And I will be. I will be back. (laughs) You be brilliant today. Okay, sir. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day.